welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. After back-to-back banger weeks, we've got a relatively quiet one to end the month, with no wins for non-citizens. Sorry, folks. Not mad at the semi-breather, though. And with everything going on in the world this week, I thought I'd discuss just a bit a non-petition for review decision from the courts on firearms. Here are your cases. First, I want to talk briefly about USA v. Jimenez Chelon, published by the 11th Circuit on May 23, 2022. In this case, the 11th Circuit upheld the constitutionality of 18 U.S.C. Section 922G5A, which criminalizes, quote, possession of a firearm by an illegal alien, end quote. The 11th Circuit's words, not mine. The decision here, upholding the constitutionality of that statute, aligns with that of at least seven other circuits. But it looks like the 11th Circuit went about it a bit differently, which is what piqued my interest. Recall. The Second Amendment reads, quote, a well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed, end quote. And recall, Justice Scalia, writing for what was at the time a five-Republican-appointed Supreme Court majority, wrote in 2008 for the first time in Supreme Court history that that phrase means, quote, that the Second Amendment confers an individual, as opposed to a collective, right to keep and bear arms, end quote. Having created an individual right for members of the people to have a gun, the question begs, who are the people who can enjoy this new fundamental right? Or put in the terms of this case, can a federal law that prohibits non-citizens in the U.S. unlawfully from possessing a gun stand after the Supreme Court's Heller decision? Are non-citizens in the U.S. unlawfully even people? Thankfully, the 11th Circuit said yes, they are. I think. But according to the 11th Circuit, quote, 
Being a member of the people to whom the Second Amendment applies as a general matter is a necessary condition to enjoy enjoyment of the right to keep and bear arms, but it is not alone sufficient, end quote. Some people can be excluded from the new Supreme Court-created fundamental right. So who are the excluded people? Well, according to the Eleventh Circuit, anyone who wasn't allowed to keep and bear arms at the founding of the country. According to the court, at the founding of the country, non-citizens in the, I suppose, brand new United States unlawfully were excluded, and so are not considered part of the people who can keep and bear arms. There is, of course, a natural and a bit frightening extension of this logic that would potentially bar this 14-year-old fundamental right from, say, African Americans, Native Americans, and a whole host of peoples excluded at the founding. And indeed, quote, several colonies enacted complete bans on gun ownership by slaves and Native Americans, end quote. But I'm sure that there are amendments that will prevent that. Undiscussed in this decision. USA v. Jimenez Shalon. And with that, here are this week's petition for review cases. Next is Yunez v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on May 26, 2022. This case is about crimes of child abuse. Mr. Nunez is 52 years old and from the Dominican Republic. He's been a lawful permanent resident for 12 years. But in March 2019, he was charged in the Superior Court of New Jersey with four crimes involving sexual conduct with a child. And the facts alleged reflect pretty bad stuff. He was ultimately convicted of endangering the welfare of a child in the third degree in violation of New Jersey Statute Section 2C, colon 24-4A1. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, DHS placed Mr. Nunez in removal proceedings, alleging that he should lose his green card because the crime meets the definition of a crime of child abuse, neglect, or abandonment, as defined at INA Section 237A2EI. We last went deep into that removability provision in Episode 72 in the crazy Ninth Circuit case Diaz-Rodriguez v. Garland, which is now again itself pending before the Ninth Circuit and Bank. Just an aside. Mr. Nunez challenged his removability, but the IJ denied his motion to terminate proceedings. He then applied for LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AA, but the IJ denied that too, holding that Mr. Nunez lacked the requisite seven years of continuous residence in any status as that statute requires, because under the stop time rule, the other one, not tethered to service of NTAs, the accrual of continuous residence stops when a non-citizen commits a disqualifying crime. And here, the evidence indicated that Mr. Nunez began committing his crime in 2013, well before he had his seven years of continuous residence in any status. So according to the immigration judge, the stop time rule prevented Mr. Nunez from even potentially being eligible for LPR cancellation. The BIA agreed. And so to the Third Circuit we go. The categorical approach governs the issue. In the Third Circuit, and really everywhere, to satisfy INA Section 237A2EI, quote, the criminal statute at issue must require a particular likelihood of harm to the child in order to constitute child abuse, end quote. Just what that likelihood must be, though, has been the subject of much writing, discussed extensively in the BIA's decisions Matter of Velasquez Herrera and then Matter of Saram, 
the latter of which was then disagreed with by the Ninth Circuit and Diaz-Rodriguez and potentially other decisions. And again, Diaz-Rodriguez itself is currently under review in the Ninth Circuit. Suffice it to say, it gets complicated as to what degree of harm qualifies to be a crime of child abuse for immigration purposes. But in the Third Circuit at a minimum, the court agrees with the BIA that child abuse includes simply, quote, mental or emotional harm, including acts injurious to morales, end quote. Mr. Nunez argued that no matter what he actually did, the statute he pled guilty to, New Jersey Statute Section 2C24-4, quote, does not require any particular likelihood of harm, and therefore his conviction cannot sustain the charge of removability, end quote. And that's a perfectly fine and correct argument to make when the categorical approach applies, and it should win the day if correct. But the Third Circuit did not believe it was correct. The New Jersey statute makes criminal at a minimum one who, quote, knowingly engaged in sexual conduct with the victim, which would impair or debauch the morals of a child, end quote. According to the court, that satisfied the definition of child abuse by both the BIA and the Third Circuit, which encompasses, quote, acts injurious to morals, end quote. Both interestingly and importantly, quote, the statute's use of would rather than could denotes that it prohibits conduct that has some likelihood rather than mere capacity of impairing a child's morales, end quote. New Jersey state case law confirms this reading of the statute. Courts have required a, quote, tendency to harm, end quote, which according to the Third Circuit equates to a, quote, likelihood of harm, end quote, and it's more than a mere, quote, capacity for harm. End quote. Worth remembering, though, if the Third Circuit had held otherwise, that is, that New Jersey case law allows conviction where there's simply a capacity for harm to a child, it doesn't appear that the Third Circuit would find that that statute satisfies INA Section 237A2EI. Keep it in your back pocket. But Mr. Nunez is therefore removable. Nevertheless, is he eligible for LPR cancellation of removal? Remember the stop time rule thing? Now that his crime has been determined to be a crime of child abuse, it all comes down to when he committed the act. He testified that actually, he didn't commit the conduct until 2018, when he'd had LPR status for eight years, meaning that he qualified for the relief. But the immigration judge did not credit that testimony, and instead relied on the plea agreement that he signed that indicated that the conduct spanned the years 2013 to 2018. That was fine to the Third Circuit. Quote, the fact that he pled guilty to a charge indicating a date as early as 2013 is itself persuasive. End quote. This despite the IJ not making an express adverse credibility finding against Mr. Nunez. Mr. Nunez therefore lost his case. Judge Ambrose, a bit begrudgingly in dissent it appears, essentially agreed with Mr. Nunez's reading of the New Jersey statute as not requiring a sufficient degree or likelihood of harm to a child. And that is Nunez v. Attorney General of the U.S. Moving on to Cardona Franco v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on May 24th, 2022. This case is mainly about credibility. Mr. Cardona Franco is from El Salvador and entered the U.S. without authorization in 2015 at the age of 17. His sister, who had LPR status, took care of him in the United States. 
He affirmatively applied for asylum with USCIS, quote, claiming he and his twin brother were targeted for their faith by El Salvadoran gangs, end quote. USCIS did not approve the application and instead referred Mr. Cardona Franco to immigration court. In immigration court, both Mr. Cardona Franco and his sister testified, but the IJ didn't believe either of them and denied relief and protection. The BIA affirmed, and later denied a motion to remand for submission of additional corroborating evidence, a motion that included evidence that Mr. Cardona Franco's twin brother was himself granted asylum by USCIS in 2018. The BIA didn't want to hear it, and Mr. Cardona Franco petitioned for review to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit affirmed. First, it rejected Mr. Cardona Franco's argument that the BIA acted arbitrarily when it refused to consider on appeal that his literal twin had been granted asylum for the same reason. The Fifth Circuit refused to consider this argument, believing it unexhausted, reasoning that even though Mr. Cardona Franco did indeed urge the BIA to consider the evidence of the twin's approval, Mr. Cardona Franco didn't bring up the legal issue until he moved the BIA to reconsider its denial of his appeal. And quote, an issue raised for the first time in a motion for reconsideration that could have been raised earlier has not been properly presented to the BIA. End quote. I needed to reread this a few times because it seems like Mr. Cardona Franco did what the Fifth Circuit is always telling non citizens to do in these cases file a motion to reconsider with the BIA, telling the BIA how it aired before petitioning for review. But the Fifth Circuit doesn't seem to like that Mr. Cardona Franco submitted new evidence in his motion for reconsideration. But on the other hand, it looks like he filed the evidence of his twin's approval with his appeal to the BIA, too. The Fifth Circuit still deemed the issue and possibly the BIA's error unexhausted, because Mr. Cardona Franco raised the legal issue, I think, for the first time on reconsideration, and plus, the evidence of the twin's asylum grant was available well before he moved the BIA to reconsider, or maybe even well before his appeal. I'm a bit confused, but of one thing I'm sure. Exhaustion is tough in the Fifth Circuit. Turning then to Mr. Cardona Franco's other challenges, the Fifth Circuit rejected his argument that the IJ was biased against him. In the Fifth, such a showing attaches, quote, only when an IJ's hostility is due to extrajudicial sources, end quote, or the IJ shows a deep-seated favoritism or antagonism that would make fair judgment impossible. Not shown here, even if the IJ's questioning was, quote, aggressive, end quote. Concluding on the appeal of the asylum denial on the merits and with credibility, the Fifth Circuit affirmed. The IJ believed Mr. Cardona Franco vague and evasive in his answers when questioned about things that had nothing to do with his asylum claim. The IJ was also, quote, not satisfied with his accounts of his evangelism, end quote, believing his testimony there also vague with suspicious holes in his story. Plus, some of his testimony conflicted with that of his sisters. This met the adverse credibility standard in the Fifth Circuit. As to the BIA's denial of some other motions, the Fifth Circuit agreed with the BIA that the other motions were untimely or failed to comply with other requirements, such as paying a filing fee. Mr. Cardona Franco, therefore, lost his case, but not his twin. And that is Cardona Franco v. Garland.
To finish the episode, we have Levy Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on May 27th, 2022. This decision is about changed country condition motions to reopen. Mr. Lee is from China and entered the United States with a K-1 fiancé visa in 2007. But in 2012, he was ordered removed under INA Section 237A1GII after he was convicted of aiding and abetting marriage fraud in order to evade immigration laws and procure his admission to the U.S. in violation of 8 U.S.C. Section 1325C. Not something we see every day on the pod. The IJ denied Mr. Lee's applications for asylum and related relief. DHS did not remove Mr. Lee and he filed three motions to reopen, the last of which in 2020 was based on alleged changed country conditions in China and is the subject of the instant petition for review. The Eighth Circuit upheld denial of this last motion to reopen. See, in 2012, Mr. Lee based his asylum claim on harm he testified to having suffered in China because of his Christianity. But the IJ didn't believe Mr. Lee and made an adverse credibility finding. With his current motion, Mr. Lee included an undated and unsworn declaration from himself, undated photos of himself handing out religious materials somewhere, and a letter from, quote, a pastor of a Christian church Mr. Lee had not attended since 2012, attesting to Mr. Lee's faith and indicating Mr. Lee had not attended a fixed church since 2012, but went to different churches when possible, end quote. So, I mean, right off the bat, that's not the strongest change country condition motion to reopen, if indeed that's all Mr. Lee submitted in his motion here. And it's even more difficult for Mr. Lee because in matter of FSN, episode 7, the BIA held that it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, for a non-citizen like Mr. Lee to get proceedings reopened, at least to apply for asylum, without first showing that the adverse credibility finding was incorrect and needs to be reopened. Or at a minimum, such a non-citizen needs to prove their case based on evidence untethered to the non-citizen's credibility. Matter of FSN makes it tough to reopen proceedings to apply for discretionary relief where an IJ has made an adverse credibility finding. Not only did the BIA hold that standard unmet by Mr. Lee here, but it believed that actually, some of Mr. Lee's new evidence conflicted with some of his old evidence. And the Eighth Circuit agreed with that as well. Rather than making arguments based on new evidence, as the change country condition motion to reopen statute requires, the Eighth Circuit believed that Mr. Lee was, quote, attempting to reassert or relitigate his prior claim, end quote. Can't do that. Nor did Mr. Lee produce important corroborating evidence of that old claim. The fact that Mr. Lee had been convicted once of marriage fraud and submitted unsworn declarations here didn't help either. At the end of the day, quote, the BIA's denial of Mr. Lee's motion to reopen based on his failure to demonstrate a prima facie eligibility for relief is dispositive, end quote. To win on a change country condition motion to reopen, the first step is proving that the non-citizen is likely, now, eligible for relief. If you can't show that, the law doesn't even give you a chance of winning such a motion. Mr. Lee, therefore, lost his third motion to reopen. But here's something to remember from the Eighth Circuit, addressed to the BIA that it was nevertheless affirming. While the Eighth Circuit didn't even review whether conditions had changed materially for Christians in China, because Mr. Li hadn't established a prima facie case that he was now eligible for asylum, the Eighth Circuit did note, and I'll quote it in full, that, quote, 
the BIA's changed country conditions analysis failed to appropriately address Mr. Li's argument that conditions had changed dramatically in China between 2011 and 2020. Simply because conditions were repressive in China in 2011 and continued to be repressive in 2020 doesn't mean the conditions had not materially changed. The applicable standard requires that the conditions during the two relevant periods be juxtaposed and that differences and similarities be noted. There was certainly evidence here in the 2015 annual report of the Congressional Executive Commission on China showing that abuse and repression of Christians in China has gotten materially worse since President Xi Jinping assumed power in 2013, end quote. So how about that, Chinese Christian asylum seekers in the Eighth Circuit? Make a chart, practitioners. Compare the country conditions past and present and don't let the BIA avoid the issue. Win your case. And that is Levy Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.